Welcome to the Board Game Workshop. I'm your host, Chris Anderson. Before we get into the episode, just a couple of announcements. First, Animal Kingdoms, designed by Stephen Aramini and published by Galactic Raptor Games, is on Kickstarter right now. As of this recording, it has about 10 days left. Stephen and Carlin Dan of Galactic Raptor have all been on the podcast multiple times. So if you'd like to go check out Animal Kingdoms, it was the winner of the Cardboard Edison Award last year. Looks like a really great game. I'm really excited for it. So you can go check that out on Kickstarter. The dates for round one of the 2019 Board Game Workshop Design Contest have been set. Round one submissions will be due April 21st. It'll be a $5 entry fee or a free entry for Patreon supporters. You'll need to submit a two-minute video about your game, as well as an entry form which includes a short description. You can head over to theboardgameworkshop.com for more details on the contest. Now, this episode will be the first in a four-episode series about elegant game design. Um, a couple of years ago, back in 2017, on my blog, Blue Cube Board Games, I wrote an article about elegant game design and went into different aspects of how you can help make your game more elegant. And since I wrote that, I always wanted to dive deeper and get more people's opinion on it, and I thought it would be great to get it on the podcast. So now, after quite a while of thinking about this, I finally managed to organize a bunch of great guests to come talk about this subject. Ended up being a four-episode series. This episode is graphic design with Adrian Zell, Jamie Stegmeier, and Jeff Engelstein. And then in February, we'll have part two, which is theme and illustration with Heather Vaughn and John Gilmore. In March, we'll have part three, which is physical design with Kathleen Mercury, Catherine Stipple, and Sen Fung Lim. And in April, we have part four, time with Jeff Engelstein, Sen Fung Lim, and Kathleen Mercury. Recording all of these was great, really went into a lot more depth than the article, and gave me some new ideas about it, and it was really enjoyable to record it all, and I'm very happy that the scheduling is over. So listen for those over the next four months, and in between we'll have our contributor episodes, which we are still looking for more contributors. So if you are interested in submitting a segment, you can email chris at theboardgameworkshop.com, and we can talk about what you want your segment to be. I think that's all of the announcements, so on to the episode. Welcome to the Board Game Workshop. I'm your host, Chris Anderson, and I'm here with Jamie Stegmeier of Stonemeyer Games, Adrian Ezel of Dreadful Games, and Jeff Engelstein from the Ludology Podcast and designer, most recently, of The Expanse and Trade on the Tigris. Welcome to the show, everyone. Hello. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks, Chris. Uh, let's start with Adrian. You want to just give us a quick little bio, who you are, where people would know you from? All right. I am Adrienne Ezel. I own Dreadful Games. I kind of use that as my catch-all for doing art for board games as well as uh, a place to get royalty checks so that way my taxes are easier. Uh, So I uh, came to board game designing actually from art and I'm a classically trained artist I suppose uh, with graphic design, no illustration. Please do not do not inquire about illustration uh, and art direction. Uh, so most recently, art direction has been the way I've been going. Um, but I've had lots of, of game experience with graphic design as well as what I call the Muggle world of graphic design. Lots of lots of casino work and that sort of thing. And Jamie, a little background? Yeah, I run a company called Stonemeyer Games here in St. Louis. Um, I am our lead designer, and I also run the operations of the company. I've designed a few games like Viticulture, Euphoria, Charterstone, and Scythe. And um, I'm not a graphic designer, but I, I work very closely with a graphic designer at Stonemaier Games called Christine Santana. And I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about that later. And Jeff. 
So I'm the uh, co-host of the Ludology podcast about uh, game design, and we certainly have talked about graphic design, some of our topics, and it's something I've gone into heavily with uh, with my designs, as you mentioned, including the Expanse and Trade on the Tigris and Space Cadets and stuff like that. And so I've always been really fascinated by how to make things easier for players. I also teach game design at NYU, and um, the topic of graphic design is always a, a critical one that I talk about with the students. So let's, for the audience and for myself, um, does anybody want to give just maybe a broad definition of what graphic design would entail? Adrian, you have the most experience here, so would you like to? Um, so when I've talked about this in the past, and I've done a few panels and, and roundtables about graphic design, I like to say that illustration is the attraction on the side of the road. Graphic design is the sign that makes you turn to it. So that's the kind of the, I guess, out there, um, <laughs> my, my ex- explanation of graphic design when I'm trying to tell people what the difference is between illustration and graphic design. Um, so graphic design makes a game accessible. It makes a game understandable, and it is the first interface that players have with the rules of the game is going to be how they visually interpret those. And that anything that is a visual interpretation of how to play the game is the graphic design of the game. So that includes icons, rulebook layout, board layout, you know, I hate saying you know, because that's that's what I'm trying to do is tell you, right? Um, it's the roadmap for the game. Well, I think a lot of people do know. They have, they have an internal idea of what graphic design is to a degree. Well, some people think they know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like the, the artwork on magic cards, um, the pictures would not be graphic design. You know, that would be illustration, but the, the icons. Absolutely. And, and the other things around that is is the graphic design, right? Yeah, absolutely. And the the frame, um, it's funny. One of the things my clients say is, oh, I want I want a card frame, but I don't want it to look like a magic card. Okay, well, that's been the magic card frame for the last two decades because it works. <laughs> because, you know, like the, the icon goes in the top left because you fan cards to the right and that, uh, like all, everything, there's a science to why all of that's there and they've already figured it out. But that, it's, it's interesting you brought up magic because that's one of the things I always go to because people know exactly, like, oh, you know exactly what color this card is, you know where the flavor text is, you know this is the illustration, this is the rule, you know, like it it all makes sense because it's been there so long, I guess, but <laughs> I've actually read that about magic recently that one of the, uh, Richard Garfield was talking about things that he would have done differently if he could go back in time. And part of it is the, uh, the design at the top of the card, because on the top of a magic card, the name is on the left and the cost is on the right. But like you said, when you fan cards, you want, you want the cost on the left. Um, so he's, he was like, that was the one thing that they can't change now because they've gone too deep, but they wish they could. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, they, they toy with it every once in a while. When they did um, Future Sight, they did a different card frame, and they basically fixed all those problems, but they couldn't keep it. It was just a one set. That's a great explanation of graphic design. So this series I'm doing, based off the article I wrote, is about elegant design, which to me is the most important thing about a game. I, I will play a themeless game. I will play a light game or a heavy game as long as it's really elegant and I can get into playing easily and the game doesn't get in the way. If I start having to check the rule book a hundred times, I lose interest and that kind of game doesn't interest me. But other than that, I'm up for almost any kind of game. In making an elegant game, I think graphic design is the most important thing because like Adrian said, it's showing you the rules. So graphic design is the connection between the rules and the physical game. What are some of the things that any of you have used personally or seen that is a way for graphic design to help make a game elegant? Well, I actually have a, a kind of a counter 
question to that because Jamie, I love Scythe. I love the way the board is laid out, your individual player boards. What informed the decision to do the double layer board so that you knew exactly where everything went? Because I think that is like that's, I want to do that in all my games. (laughs) I don't care if they have three wooden pieces. That's phenomenal. Like how, how did you arrive at that? Because I think that is an excellent example of what the question he just asked yeah i hadn't thought about that as a uh, graphic design choice but in the end it it definitely is um well, I, you, uh, you can't yeah. accidentally put the wrong thing like right. it, it fits right here <laughs> yeah so the idea behind the player mats for those who haven't seen them inside they're they're um they're double layered and the top layer is kind of like it's pre-punched and glued to a bottom layer and it has all these different slots that hold different things like cubes or buildings of different types and uh, it it makes setup of the game much easier because it's telling you, it's communicating by size, like where things actually fit in the mat, um, where they should go. And, uh, and if you bump the table while you're playing and you have all these pieces on the mat, they don't go everywhere. And it's really important they don't go everywhere because it would be a little bit difficult to put them back in the right place. Um, there are pros and cons to it. Like all those things I think are good. The, the cons are that... Uh, in terms of production, it's uh, a bit of a hassle. Like we, there every now and then we find a board that isn't punched properly on the top row, and so a, a piece gets glued to the bottom layer. Um, it's also about four times more expensive than printing a regular player mat, and uh, and they are a little bit more prone to warping than regular mats because you have this glue that's drying and reacting to the climate of wherever it, it's resting and being stored in addition to the cardboard and how that's responding to the climate. Um, so I've kind of said that I would only do it again if like if we really, really needed to do it in a game. But I think it worked out pretty well for Scythe. Yeah, I think it was definitely the right choice. I really, I really like that. And your iconography on the board and stuff as well is really, really well done in that game. Thank you. Jeff, have you ever uh, talked to a publisher about a component that you thought uh, needed to be designed a certain way so that it would work with a game? I know you work with publishers. You're not a publisher, but have you ever gone to a publisher and said, hey, this component doesn't work unless it looks or feels or um, or responds like this? Um, well, I think that, yeah, I mean, you're, you're, I don't have a specific anecdote, but certainly one of the things that we're looking for is how to... Um, you know, ha- how the players interact with the components and, you know, giving them hints. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm an engineer by day, and that's that's one of the critical things that you look at in product design is just, you know, you don't want people to make mistakes in user interface or if, you know, somebody's pushing a door, you want to make it really obvious that they have to push the door and not pull the door. And things like, um, you know, inside the mats where the pieces only fit one way is a great way to kind of just help guide the players and prevent them from making mistakes. Or Eclipse, I think, is another great example where as you take components off the board, you know, you move things from one track to another and you reveal numbers beneath that tells you what it's what it's supposed to do. Um, so one of the things I always look at when I'm designing is to have, you know, sort of a consistent visual language um, that this icon always means this same thing across the board. And it's really, uh, it's very clear uh, and differentiable between icons. So you, you don't confuse them if you're looking at them from a distance. And that's something that as a designer, I try to do, even though I'm not an artist, I mean, I will try to just use very basic shapes and colors on my cards or board or whatever in a consistent way. And it's one of the very early things that I'm looking at is how are players interacting with this? What do they find confusing? What's easy? What's hard? And uh, even our first game, the Aries Project, we spent a lot of time on that. 
I, I see a lot of, you know, I, I, I teach the students and I see a lot of, you know, early designs from other people. And some people spend so much time early on on illustration rather than graphic design because they kind of confuse the two. And I always say, look, spend your time on graphic design. Don't worry about the illustrations. You know, that'll, that's going to come later. But that graphic design part is, is going to be really critical for seeing how smooth things are. Um, so, so yeah, that's, that's something that I'm always paying attention to during the development process and want to make sure that it doesn't get watered down, uh, by the, um, uh, by the final publisher that they don't, you know, just make all the icons the same color or something to make it just, you know, just look nicer from an illustration standpoint. Oh, I really love hearing that. And not just because I do graphic design, but I found working with Kickstarter creators, especially or indie publishers, um, as far as the graphic designs, you know, spend your time on that. You know, if, if a card, if, if a single poker size card needs three icons and two sentences of text, your illustration, if you have one at all, is going to be very small. And there's no need to buy, you know, a $500 full bleed illustration, because you can't use it. Yeah, we, we have to cover it up with the stuff. Um, but sorry, that was kind of an interjection, because what I wanted to ask you about is how close was the graphic design for Dragon and Flagon to the final, like with the board and the, the stuff that goes around? Because I know you play test a lot and kind of work out the kinks of your games. Like I've heard very good things about working with your designs. <laughs> well, I appreciate <laughs> um, that. So like without the, I mean, not counting the illustration, obviously, but like how close mechanically, I guess, graphic design expressed mechanics uh, of the like dragon and flagon board were utilized in the final production copy. Um, I, that one was really pretty close. Um, you know, we spent a lot of time on the cards because every, every, the cards, it's kind of like a program movement game for those that haven't played it. And each card represents what you do. And it's kind of shows where you can move to or the, the area of effect of whatever it is. And we spent a lot of time of trying different types of little grids and layouts and stuff like that to explain to people. Um, and again, we were really consistent. So we used like yellow squares for one thing and, and orange with a pattern for something else and green is for movement. So, and, and that helped draw people's eyes to what the cards did immediately. Um, so the publisher, I, I made sure that Stronghold carried that through. Um, they put a lot of fancy background behind it, but those grids that show exactly what the action does were, were carried over very strongly from what we supplied them with. Yeah, that's really great. I appreciate that about it, too. Like, it's it's intuitive to me. And I think good graphic design should be intuitive. It should let you know what you're about to do. I think it, it kind of harkens to Onatama for me that way. And if you're not familiar with that game, it's essentially, uh, I don't know, boiled down chess. Um, with very specific moves that you can do. As a matter of fact, you basically get something that looks like a Tetris piece on a grid in front of you, which is exactly where your piece can move, period, the end. So you have five pieces and you can move it to this exact spot. You can do this one move uh, and then you trade it in for another move available. So you pick from two. And um, But it, it, it harkens to that for me and I, I like that about it because it's, it gives you that expectation and you feel like you already know how to play. Right. Yeah, that actually reminds me of a um, uh, an exercise that uh, Rob Davio uh, mentioned to me one time when he when he teaches game design classes that he will give the class a game without the rules and say figure out how to play it, and then after they're you know done spending a half an hour or whatever you know going through the components messing around, then he says okay here's the actual rules and explains the game, and then has the class compare 
what did they think was happening and what is actually happening and and it is very illustrative of this concept of graphic design and that in 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 what the students are looking at the graphic design has to tell the whole story and it it immediately shows you the holes of you know the graphic design or things that are misleading or maybe areas that need some further explanation so that you can get to that point where you're playing the game without worrying about the rules. That is amazing. I'm going to do that in my summer camp this year with the library kids. That I'm, but I'm going to do two groups. <laughs> yeah, that's you. You're going to be the one that goes in and hides the rules for all the games, and then say, "Okay, kids, play time. Here you go." <laughs> yes, that's going to be me. Well, see. If I have two groups of kids and I get them both to decide how to play the game, I'll get them to present their games and then I will tell them how to actually play. Oh, it's going to be fun. <laughs> it reminds me of a quote I heard on a podcast recently. It might have been one of you. I'm not sure. But they were talking about graphic design and said with any other product, like outside of games, if you have to use the instructions, you've already failed. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And like so many products, like you don't look at the instructions for your fan. Like, you know how the fan works because of the graphic design, the layout, the shape of it. And I think the goal for board games should be to achieve that same thing. Like, if you can get them playing without a rule book, that would be ideal. Yeah, I mean, rules, in my view, are the original sin of board games. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's it's the root of so much evil. Uh, and, and it, yeah, anything that we can do to get rid of it, which is, you know, Friedman Fries has been doing work around that, of games that teach themselves and stuff like that, I, I, I think is a really fascinating area. Yeah. I mean, video games got around it. No one uses rules for video games anymore. Yep. Yeah, if you can even get a video game with a rule book, which, you know, fat chance. I mean, that used to be the thing. You'd have to yeah. get out the book <laughs> and figure out how to use it. Yeah, 300-page manual would be great. It was good times, good times I actually have all. a box of those in my closet that I found <laughs> yesterday, and it it's like your sword and sorcery with five, like or something and then it came with a map book too yeah no we can't get away with that anymore (laughs) (laughs) let's let's dig into icons icons are maybe the biggest part of graphic design that most games have i mean you throw icons on cards you throw them on dice you throw them on your board they're all over your rule book they're replacing words in a lot of cases so adrian you've actually done graphic design work for games how do you use icons to make it easier to learn or more accessible? So only where it makes sense. And that's something that people need to learn. Um, if that's something that designers and publishers need to learn. If it's a concept that takes you five minutes to explain, an icon may or may not work for that. Because if once you get it, you get it, sure, it can be an icon. If it, you always have to go, wait, what does it do? Because the concept is difficult, then having it be an icon isn't gonna make it any less difficult. <laughs> Um, So I kind of use it as abbreviated speech when I'm showcasing a game or designing the components for a game. If it saves time, so things like a heart for life or essence or anything you want to, anything that is the value of when you're out of this, you're dead. um, That a heart is going to be intuitive to most people because of how how we're informed in the world. Um, However... So do you feel, Adrian, that, that I apologize for interrupting, but do you feel that we are over the years converging on a standard set of icons? Like if I get into a car, right, the windshield wiper icon's almost always the same, right? And it, it just makes it easier for navigate. So like you talk about hearts, are we, is is there a common visual language for victory points and rerolls and all, all this other stuff? Or do you think that still everyone's all over the place and tries to reinvent the wheel? Everyone's all over the place and is proprietary. 
they don't want to do what Fantasy Flight does, and they don't want to do what this other Asmodee company does. And it so, and they'll specifically, as getting directives from publishers, I'll be specifically told that. It's like, okay, we need victory points, but it can't be a star, and it can't be VP, because Mayfair did oh, that. Really? And it, wow. yeah, I mean, that absolutely. That's, and if you use. makes me so sad. I am so, so <laughs> sad right, right? now. <laughs> um, but honestly, so here to go with your, like, so you get into your car. Did you know? that 90% of automobiles on the road today have an arrow above the gas icon that tells you which side the gas pump is on, the gas uh, hole <laughs> is on, tank. Yeah, so you didn't... I know that because I rent lots okay, of cars, so, and that's like a lifesaver. So, what, so one, one, out of, one out of three knew that? So that's not universal, even though now when you get into your car later, you're going to be like, oh, yes, it totally is on the left. Check it out. <laughs> um, so that's that's why is because we don't have the universal information. So we can't have universal icons. Um, and that does that make any sense? Yeah. But do we I mean, do we agree that that would be a great and valuable thing to have? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I do. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we understand that the phone is ahead, the restrooms on the left, you know, like we, we get those. And I think having those in board games would be very useful. Um, but I think the ideas and the want to the want to differentiate yourself from the pack is going to be too strong and overpower that. Like you, no one taps cards except for magic, and it'll be the same kind of thing. All right, we we don't do this; we do this other icon instead. Um, I think that's going to be strong for a long time as the the market continues to broaden. <laughs> well, do you think there's a limit of how different things can be? I mean, where there's what six thousand games released every year eventually there's a limit to the number of shapes you can make mm-hmm. in a one inch square. Oh, absolutely. But it's not going to stop people from trying. And then you've got colors and patterns and degrees of uh, identifiability, which probably has a real word. Because <laughs> identifiability is not a word. <laughs> so what you're saying is it might get worse before it gets better. Um, I think so. But I, I think as long as we have enough people out there committed to making things user-friendly. I, th- I have seen a large push toward, U- toward UI, which is something, um, so the user interface is what UI stands for. And b- that happened in video games yeah, for the last five to 10 years. And finally, we're hearing about UI in terms of analog products. And it's fantastic because that is exactly what we're talking about. We're talking about the ease of use of the end user. And that's what user interface is. And so now that people are talking about that, we are getting kind of a push toward high contrast icons that are fantastic for low visibility uh, colorblind players. And um, we're having different tactile elements added to things so that there's more than one thing different. So it's not just that there's five different colors of meeples because we're going to have green and red. And red, green, colorblind is one of the most prolific um, types of, of colorblindness. Um, but we'll also like give them something to hold so that the meeples are a different shape or they have a different pattern on them. So like they're screen printed. Um, so we're seeing things. And again, with icons the same way, we're seeing that high contrast and um, like a square, a circle, a triangle instead of all circles, all the same color that may or may not be um, identifiable from far away. So we're seeing accessibility happen. And I think accessibility in this case is actually driving uniformity in, in iconography. There are also a few companies that uh, 
kind of use a common language amongst all of the games that they make. Uh, two that came to mind are Red Raven games, uh, Ryan Lockett, and Garpill games. They do like the most recently the Architects of the West Kingdom and Raiders of the North Kingdom or, or North Sea. Like those uh, those two guys, I think Shem and Ryan, separately. If I sit down with a Red Raven game and I played a Red Raven game before. I can recognize a bunch of the icons and kind of Jeff that experience you talked about that Rob did. I it makes that game. I could sit down with a Red Raven game and understand a decent amount of it just from having played other Red Raven games. So even though his icons aren't industry wide, and same with Garpill, he uses a of actually a very different uh, victory point icon. If I've played one of his games, it really does help me the next time I want to play another one. So I, I kind of like that on a micro level. As a compromise, at least. Yeah, it does make it easier. But also, it can help buy into your other games. If, mm-hmm. if someone's more comfortable with their first game, the second game is automatically easier now. So, totally. And making it easier for players to play is the goal. Yeah. So one of the things I always find interesting, and I'm really curious to hear your, your perspectives on this, is... Um, you know, there are some games that I feel like the iconography is for not for the first time player, but for the returning player, it's it's more of a, of a, of a nudge or a hint of something you already knew, but it's not going to teach it to you. And I feel like um, uh, like Guilds of London has a lot of complex iconography and pictures and stuff. And it's got a giant sheet with like 50 different pictures on it that you have to look at and cross reference to see what they are. And once you go through the first game, the next game you come back, everything sort of makes sense. Um, and I think Race to the Galaxy to a certain extent is kind of like that as well with with the myriad number different icons they have that it's more of hints for the experienced player do you feel that that those still are useful and serve a purpose or they're kind of you know working against that core concept of the iconography in the first place i think with with race specifically because i'm more familiar with that their their iconography is so complex that it's more of a language like they have multiple pieces that they'll add together so there's the eye that's looking at cards and there's the hand that's holding cards and there's an eye and a hand and that means something different so with that it's a very complex iconographic language which now after playing it for several years is great but it's it's one of the densest light games to get a new person to play which is sad and they tried to fix that with um whatever the light one is whatever it's called. I don't know, but it's the lighter version. And they, But they were kind of still stuck in their same iconography. So even though they simplified the gameplay, they're still stuck with this very complex icon language, which is, I don't know if it's helped them or not. I, I love it now that I'm used to it, but it is, it's very hard to get new players into. So how would you equate that with learning a second language? Do you know a second language out of curiosity? I do not. You do not. So what we're talking about is glyphs. We are talking about an actual language. Um, so that's when you when you think about it like that, it's, you know, obviously, it's going to take a long time to learn. So I think when we're talking about complex concepts being represented by icons as a t- as a type of shorthand, that's different than kind of simpler concepts that are the icon is the thing instead of standing for something else. Does that make sense? Like, so if you have health for uh, a unit in adrenaline, the little robots, right? His health is eight. He has eight hearts. You take away a heart. The players don't say, oh, I lost a health. They say, ah, you know, I lost a heart. Um, So it's, we're kind of talking about two different things. Uh, Yeah, sorry, that that kind of rambled, but I knew what I meant. (laughs) 
So would you consider the icons in Race for the Galaxy to be graphic design, or is it just a shorthand language? And is that different? Um, if it, I mean, if it's that complex, then it's a shorthand language. Interesting. I think some of the icons are very simple, but they, they take the simple icons and then they start combining them for more complex things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you're getting it, if you're trying, if you're, if you're acting, you know, being German and making compound words by just adding hyphens, I mean, you're, you're kind of defeating the point of icons. <laughs> oh, well, I still love race. <laughs> or the initial, the initial point, uh, the initial point of icons. Oh, yeah, I actually have not played the game. I'm not familiar. So, <laughs> um, oh, well, you can try it and let it get back to us on how long it took <laughs> to, you to, to, figure uh, out to the internalize icons. the, uh, to internalize the language. <laughs> well, you know, and it's funny. So I played a lot over the holidays, uh, played a lot of different games and I'm trying to think if any had iconography that was debilitating toward understanding the game or was really good uh, one of the games I played was Rebellion and I find it interesting that in that game the iconography on the cards is more to like mark which sets they're from rather than be any sort of gameplay element so it just kind of gets in the way because uh, one of the icons specifically is like a little Darth Vader head which winds up winds up looking like a Pez dispenser guy on top of you know movie stills in comparison of art level so um but you know I'm, I'm not nothing's really coming to mind that had really intuitive um iconography that's you know recent or that I've that I've just played uh, but it's one of those it's I hate to always be the, like I know it when I see it because um, I don't think that's a think that's a really informative answer for people trying to figure out what good graphic design is or, or what it should be um, well I think that is a good definition though because the point of graphic design is that you do know it when you see it but it doesn't get in the way so you don't go oh what great graphic design <laughs> Yeah, it's like that's I mean, that's the thing, though, it should be unobtrusive and should just it should introduce the information to you. Yeah, I mean, my go to example of great graphic design is always Eclipse, um, which I you know always show to my classes and go through it in detail. There's just so many great elements in there. It's just so obviously was well thought out, um, you know, from what I mentioned before is, is just this the affordance or just the, the user help that as you place markers on the board it exposes you know higher and higher either either upkeep costs or or resources so you can just at a glance i mean before that if you're playing like stellar conquest and all, all these other uh, f original 4x games um you used to have to actually go through planet by planet and add up your your resource totals and it was just such an elegant way to do that to have the different spaces that they've got where they have um the technology tiles have a very distinctive shape it's very obvious where you can place those um, and the victory tiles have a different shape and, and there's some spaces where you can put you know either in a two different types of tiles and it kind of combines the shape into a single shape so it's obvious that you can put either of those in one space and, and other places will only take one type of tile so there's just so many nice little touches in that game you know certainly that would be my go-to for you know people looking for strong graphic design yeah, Eclipse is the game that got me into designing games because of how elegant it was. When the first time I played, I was like, "This is this is amazing that they can do this with such a big game." But it it was so intuitive after one round. Yeah, and on the flip side, for just a a quick example of like a negative user interface thing, and I always hate to knock games, but this is a minor element, but it just drove us crazy the first time we saw it. Is in the game The Pursuit of Happiness which I really enjoy and I've played it a bunch of times, but there's two tracks. There's one track that tracks your, um, your, your short-term happiness. Um, and 
from from sad to happy and there's another track that tracks your stress from super stressed out to like blissful and on the short-term happiness track it bad to good goes from left to right and on the stress track bad to good goes from right to left and they're right on top of each other and it's just I, it's just one of those things which just makes you scratch your head saying, you know, why would they do that? You know, why, why not have good always be move your marker to the right is always good and move your marker to the left is always bad or vice versa. Just pick one, you know, just mixing it up is just another thing that people have to think about when they look at the board. Like, am I in a good position, better position than red or worse position than red? Now that you say that, we actually have that in Euphoria the way that you just said it because in euphoria you want your workers to be happy but dumb and so if you are happier you move to the right and if you are dumb you move to the left so it's it's i i had never thought about it that way jeff but we might have done those tracks the wrong way oh uh, see, go second second edition edition. (laughs) we just printed it (laughs) (laughs) yeah but it's little stuff like that, you know, and the problem is a designer sometimes is you're just so freaking close to the game. Mm-hmm. You know, you're just, you, you just have played it so much that some of this stuff is invisible to you. And that's why to just kind of stand back and watch other people try to play it. I mean, and you know, that's what I'm focusing on for the most part when I'm watching play tests is what are people stumbling over? What, what point do they get to? And then they just don't know what to do or they don't know how something works. And, th- and that's what I try to, to focus on. We actually had this come up recently. Um, this idea of like being able to step outside yourself and I'm learning through the specific game Between Two Castles of Mad King Ludwig is a game that we released a few months ago and a common thing that we've heard from people and and, uh, reviewers as well is that they have a hard time seeing the icons on the tiles which never came up in playtesting and I never noticed it. I, I have 20-20 vision, so I, I can I can see these icons from across the table. But I wasn't watching playtesters to see how they were exactly looking at these icons. And so I was curious what you guys do to, to figure out how big you need to make text and icons, especially if you have good vision and, and you don't have difficulty personally seeing them yourself. Um, how, do, how do you determine how, how big to make the texture icons on, on cards and tiles? I always make them too big in my prototypes and they look they look comical once i print it but on the screen it looked fine uh-huh. yeah i was gonna say without being excessive as big as i can make it is generally my rule of thumb um, as big as the illustration and things will allow me to make it um, and then a lot of blind testing and i also do color blind testing with different tools on the computer and as well as in the real lifes um, as well as low vision um, to see if it's if it's readable i mean i i have a rather large dining table and that's kind of my first step is get on the other side of that and and see if this in front of me in my tableau if you can tell what in the world card that is i think it also depends on how it's going to be used i mean just as a general rule i don't want to make text smaller than like nine point um eight or nine point and you know the clarity of the font is super important to me also you know rather than some, some games have these ridiculous swoopy fonts and it just drives me nuts. It's about style, Jeff. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's bad UI is what it is. <laughs> um, yes. And like a game which I absolutely adore as a game um, is um, Tide, Tides of Time. And, but the graphic design on that is just atrocious because they, because they focus on the illustration, right? Everything is designed to look beautiful. And it looks beautiful, but you can't tell what the heck is going on. Um, 
and and I, but the other thing is not just you know the general font size and icon size but also how it's used i mean if i'm putting a card in front of me on the table and it's important for all the other players to be able to see what is going on with that card like if it's like le havre or something where i have to put i may want to put a worker on that card that's one type of constraint if it's just something i'm always holding in my hand and i have to see it while i'm holding in my hand and you know once i play it and it gets discarded then i have a lot more leeway in terms of sizes and things like that yeah, I think that's actually the one thing that we missed with uh, castles, because in castles, you pretty you have the tile like right in front of your face as you're drafting it, and then you put it right down in front of you in the castle, and you never really need to look at any other tile in any other castle until the end of the game when you want to look at what their castle looked like. But we, what we found since the game came out is that people actually do, there's a certain type of gamer that wants to look at very specific tiles from across the table even though it's a very small percentage, but they're very vocal about it. Um, and one of the things, actually, Jeff, that you said that reminded me of this is uh, text, the, the legibility of text. Um, we I like to text, test it upside down if it's uh, like a label that you need to read from across the table because there's certain text that reads very, very easily right side up. But if you need to read it upside down, it suddenly becomes very, very difficult to read. So I like to test for that. Agreed. Yeah, that, that's something I try to do as well. I recently heard someone complaining about uh, serif fonts because their vision was going. And I never even thought about like a regular like Times New Roman serif font being a problem. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I don't I, I wouldn't have thought that. Yeah. Uh, you know, basic fonts like that would have an issue. Well, yeah, there's there's certain things. So like if um, Traditionally, like, they would be used for, like, newspaper headlines, and it would be sans serif for the body because the text is so much smaller. Uh, but there's a whole myriad of things like that. Like, um, white text on a black background is actually far more legible, right side up, upside down, sideways, at any size than black on white. Really? Um, which is why original computer screens were that way. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, or, like, the green and green and greener, um, I guess, were the original computer screens. But... Uh, monitors. So white text on back, black, black uh, white text is easier to read from across the table or upside down? Yep. Interesting. Um, and then all caps is less identifiable to most people than upper and lower case. Um, there's specific kerning guidelines for different different fonts, and the kerning should be wider. That's the space between letters for, for people who don't work with, worth work with uh type all the time um, should be wider for serif fonts because people will identify the serifs as being an additional letter or they will run together and they'll, for instance, two U's next to each other will read as a W um, depending on the, the vision of the, the viewer. And this is the importance of hiring a good graphic designer, people. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody that had to sit through all those classes and kind of paid attention. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So let's Let's move on to, I mean, we touched on it a bit, talking about uh, Eclipse and Scythe, but I think one of the best things you could do to help your player is to put rules on the components whenever you can, which, I mean, it's pretty obvious when it comes to cards, that's done, but I like putting icons in the right place on the board, certain arrows if things are moving from one place to another. Are there any examples of that that any of you have used to just help? Like anything that lets the player not have to go back to the rules to know that a phase is happening, to know that a conversion does this or anything like that? Well, I, one one little thing that I've seen in some some of our games and other games is uh, putting, like if you, ha- if you don't have a, a perfectly intuitive place where your, say your victory point tokens need to start on the track, like if it's not zero, 
that you put like a little dot or something to show to remind players this is where they start. Like this is the this is the point, and that way they don't have to refer to the rule book to remember that it starts at everyone starts at with seven points or whatever it is, and also uh, player count scaling. Like in Charterstone, there's a progress track, and we put you know six p for six players and five p for five players depending on where you need to start in the game. Um, it's not an ongoing rule that you need to remember, but it's it's something that makes setup just a little bit easier, so you don't need to refer back to the rule book. Yeah, setups. Anything that helps setup is great because I could save mm-hmm. you 10, 15 minutes. Sure, sure. That's the difference between playing a game and not. Right, right. Was so it House of Danger, the choose your own adventure game? They had that. They have just a little track for tracking two things, but the starting space is a little bolder. So once mm. you know it, you know always oh, start at that spot. Nice. Yeah, there's a lot of little touches on boards and components that can be done that way as far as these two boards always butt up to each other or uh, making lines that go across multiple items that should line up mm-hmm. so that, you know, oh, we put them on, put them on this line, like a horizon. Or um, like Jamie was saying, you know, Mark, this is where you start with victory points. This is where two-player, three-player, four-player. That's something that I'm running into more and more and suggesting to clients to make their games uh, faster to play if they have... Uh, varying rules for player counts or varying, I guess, components for player counts. I think Keyflower does this pretty well. Um, and it's not a new game at all, but uh, their tiles have enough information that you know what that tile does and you can tell from across the across the table. And I think it's pretty well done in the original Keyflower. Yeah, it's playing um, Lost City is the board game once and I actually played it twice in a row with different groups at a con and the second time they were setting up the board and they're putting all of the I think they're victory point tokens but they're like a little scroll and they're putting them face up and I was like I don't think you put them face up and oh, before we check the rules we noticed that on the board there's a little outline for where they go and because of the shape of the token it only goes the other way so you had to put it face down for it to match up and it's just little things like that that make it obvious what's supposed to happen Nice. 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 <laughs> yeah, we had a similar thing in, um, well, an example of this in Dragon and Flagon, um, where you actually plan, um, normally you, you you plan actions in advance and you plan two cards face down is, is what you do for your planning. But if you're stunned, you have to plan a third card in your queue. Um, but if you're stunned even further, you can get stunned while you have three out. You never have to put more than, than three cards out, no matter how many times you get stunned by other people. Um, and, uh, you know, originally we just had, since it was, you know, two or three cards, it was pretty simple. We just put it down. You just, you just put the cards face down in front of you. Um, and what we ended up doing in the final game, because it it helped players was we actually underneath each player mat. Now there was a little arrow of where a little bracket of like where you put the cards and the player mats were exactly three cards wide. There was only room for three cards. And the first two had a normal thing and the third one had a stun. So even if you got stunned and you were like, oh, I need to put a card out. And it's like, well, there's, you I, you theoretically could put a fourth card out, I guess. You know, there's nothing physically stopping you, but it's, it's, a, it's a pretty clear hint that, hey, something is different here. And maybe I should at least check the rules to make sure that, to see what I do there. Right. Yeah. And in general, I like things that, like I mentioned with Eclipse, of covering up things and exposing things, I think is a real nice, natural way to do that. Um, We did that a little bit in Expanse, where as you get bonuses, you have to put these markers down on the track. And, uh, you know, like you can only pick each sector for to have a bonus twice. And so there's only two markers included. And when you use them, you have to put them and flip them upside down on the track. And so it just totally takes them out of play. And you don't have to remember it. You just look at the markers that are left. And that's 
you know, that's what you have to choose from. Yeah, like when doing one action forces the result that you need from something else instead of separate tracking or anything. Yeah, like um, like in Feast for Odin, when you buy your extra Vikings, you know, well, now it costs more food, and that's underneath them, obviously, because if the Viking's not there, then there's more Vikings to feed. Um, like, I, I really like incorporating stuff like that, that, yeah, it, it's your cause and effect right there. Like, you know when, oh, I picked this up, now I need three more wheat, or whatever. There are also games that have capacity limits on things like resources, and they might have, like, if you if you can only hold five bricks, there might be five brick-shaped slots. Um, so it makes it very clear to show you how many you can actually keep. So I have a, another question. <laughs> I'm, cause I'm just curious, as from the designer perspective. So because it, it's not something I worry about as a designer, maybe I should more, but as, as a publisher or as somebody that's, that's actually doing the graphic design on a project, it, uh, language independence and localization concerns, it, does that drive graphic design at all to make it, would you do things you wouldn't otherwise normally do if it was just going to be in one language? When I'm working as an art director, I take it into consideration and make sure I order things um, in a very specific way. And then as the graphic designer, I will suggest things like all of the text for every single document, every card, every token be on a separate layer so that I can lock all of the other layers and send it to my localization team and say, yes, you're only working on the one, the one translation layer. But honestly, that's the only thing I've really run into um, except for issues of, say, cultural sensitivity and you know, just trying to be an educated person of the world is making sure what you want to do anyway, regardless of whether you're localizing or not, um, but making sure I don't have anything that is untoward in another culture. <laughs> um, and that's, again, more of a an art direction thing. So the, that would come to me from the publisher, but it's something that I care about as an art director and will kind of implement into my graphic design whether or not I'm being paid for art direction um, as far as kind of making it easy to to localize. So for me, I, I work with a, a number of localization partners for our games. And uh, we, I guess there are two stages. One is when I'm designing the game and figuring out if I want just icons on, on the content versus text or text and icons combined and I try and honestly I try not to think about the language independence at all I just try to think about the player experience what's what's best for the players is is it easier for them if they can actually just read this line of text or is it easier for them if there's an icon there or a mix of the two and that's because I've seen too many games that go too far either way they might have way too much text or they might have uh way too many icons that are too complex and you need to look them up in a separate book um, that that actually just makes it more complicated. And from the publishing side, I've learned from our localization partners that they actually like it when our games are not language independent because it means that someone in Italy needs to buy the Italian version of the game. They can't just buy the English version and download the Italian rules. (laughs) Um, So they, they, at least most of the partners that I work with and talk to, greatly prefer it to be language uh, dependent. What about you, Jeff? Have you thought about this throughout your designs? Um, yeah, I mean, at certain points, we've tried to make things more language independent. Um, I know with Space Cadets, we just, I mean, this this is a totally different issue, I guess, but we we had some problems localizing it because all the text was white on white text on black backgrounds, which I guess people found out later was a lot harder to just change the plates out for. I guess it's easier if it's black text on a white background. 
Um, so that was just something that, that I, I was not aware of, but yeah, I mean, I, like I said, I don't really worry about it when I'm designing. If something needs text, it needs text. I'm, I don't change abilities or change things just so that it can be represented by an icon, but I, I could certainly see a situation where somebody might. My favorite uh, ways that some companies have done it, uh, there's a game called Deus that does it. We did this in Charterstone a little bit is to use both independently, like put the icon, if, if you can just explain that you get two coins and two victory points from a card to have those icons on there, but I, but also explain it in text if it needs, if it needs, if, it, if it's a little bit more complex than that. And Deus does that really well, where the icons are all there, but the text is also there if you need to refer to it. That way it kind of meets both needs. And I know Race for the Galaxy has like four cards that have explanatory text on them. That's it. Everything else is mm. just icons, but there was just four cards that um, uh, the designer just, he was like, there's no way we can express this level of detail <laughs> in the iconography. And it, he, he just had to draw the line somewhere. Mm-hmm. In the uh, Race for the Galaxy app, they actually fixed a lot of that because they added a lot more reminder text than the original game has because now they can with an app. They can do whatever they want. But like they added a lot more help, which I think that's a more accessible way to get into the game now because of that. Last thing, the actual actual rules design and layout, which, as we were saying, the rules are a terrible thing that you shouldn't have to use, but games still have them. So what are some tips and useful things for how to lay out rules, uh, putting images, icons? I know whenever I make my rules for prototypes, I try to get it on as few sheets of paper as possible because I don't want to print a book. But that's obviously the wrong way to do it for a production copy. My guideline is having most of the rules be explained by what I call infographics, which are just explanatory little diagrams. Um, So my favorite rule books in the industry are the Alea rule books. So you just have to read the gray over on the side and you actually know how to play the game. <laughs> um, or you can read every word if you would like to. They're both there. Uh, I really like those. Um, but I tend to push toward a visual explanation that also has the text. I've learned a lot from public speaking and the different panels and things I've been on at different conventions that everybody learns differently. So having visual explanation as well as the written explanation um, is really great for a lot of gamers. Um, So that's kind of, I I try to do a good balance and not reiterate the same thing four times. That's apparently, I I get kind of dinged for that, but I I like to make sure they really know that they they should do this. Yeah, I like having different styles of showing the same thing because I've I've run into s- several situations in games where they like an edge case or a certain interaction won't be explained in the rules, but it's pointed out in an example that maybe I skipped over the example and just read the rules and I totally missed that interaction. Yeah, a friend introduced us to a game this weekend, and I I can't even remember the name of the game because I I was some deck builder about magic because I mean obviously that narrows it down. <laughs> um, and it's got a beautiful rule book and the components were nice. It never tells you how many cards you start with as a deck builder. <laughs> like it's later it tells you you can draw up to six, but drawing up to six as you're refilling your hand does not mean you started with six. <laughs> you start the start the game with zero. Apparently. And the first turn you can't do anything. You can't do and then anything you and then you draw up to six. <laughs> yeah, but it was like they, they forgot setup. They forgot how many cards you you know, like really? The hardest rule to rule mistake to find is the thing you forgot to say. The rule oh, that just for isn't sure, there. For sure. <laughs> I ran into that in um, 
playing Red 7 for the first time, in, in the base game, you never draw cards. It doesn't say you don't draw cards. It just never says you do. So I spent 10 minutes looking for when and how we draw cards because I'm so used to drawing cards in a card game. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just just tell me I don't do it. If you're doing something different than normal, you have to point it out. And you should point it out even if you're doing something that is normal. Yeah, but I mean, the problem with rules is in terms of, of layout and stuff like that is, you know, rules need to serve two purposes. You know, they need to uh, introduce the, you know, teach the game but also serve as a reference to the game if there's rules questions that come up later. And those two things kind of work against each other, um, especially when you get into heavier games or more complex games, you know, because you want to, you don't want to interrupt the flow of the rule for a little exception or, oh, but, you know, you may have to do this over here. Or if this, if there's a tie, do this, you know, all those little things sort of interrupt. Um, so I know that's like why Fantasy Flight has really kind of, almost standardized now in having the two rule books, you know, the teaching rule book and the reference rule book, which I really like as a system. Um, so, you know, anything you do to give like a more narrative, natural way of, of teaching. And then there's, there's a follow-up reference later that people can get to if they want to get into the nitty gritties, I think is a really nice approach. And one thing that I learned fairly early on too is, um, and this is, is very obvious to all of you, I'm sure, but uh, having consistency within the rule books. Like if you have... If you use italicized text for your for examples, use that for all of the examples, so that when someone's skimming through the rule book, they can identify. Like they, they don't even have to think about it. They, they their brain identifies that as an example text, or like text boxes, or like the background color of, of the the example, or or the the definition, or just breaking it down into those different. Um, those different visual cues, I think, helps parse it. And when, for those of us who don't use two different rule books um, in our games, that when someone's skimming the rule books later, they can easily jump to all the yellow boxes because those they know those are the the core definitions of, of things. Yep. Yeah, it's a great way to do it. And yeah, your tip there about having consistent terminology is critical. Mm-hmm. You know, if you call something one thing over here and something else over there, it's just a bad idea. You got to just scrupulously go through and make sure that everything is consistently referenced. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree with all of that. I, I don't particularly like the two separate rule books, but that's because like the, like I said, the Aaliyah rule books with the gray sidebar that is kind of the, the one rule book and then the rest is, <laughs> I, I feel like it can be done in, in one book and I feel like it's easier for players to find that way just in my just like my my opinion here but um, I do really like visual glossaries if you have any kind of iconography and I love putting those on the back of the rule book so it can be face up on the table if anybody has questions about oh wait what's this one with the arrow that points this way oh it's take an action you know so that that's very um sometimes even better than doing an individual player aid if you have more than is going to fit on you know your three and a half inches of copy space yeah one thing i um i i tried it once but i haven't gotten finished rules enough to try it but um i want to put my rules through one of those online word count things they usually use it for like word clouds so that i can see like if there's a weird word that comes up two or three times in a rule book it's probably better to just cut that word and lower the actual number of different words used. Yeah. Oh, okay. I'm stealing that. I like that. It's I'm a lot of work that. to do it. <laughs> yeah, that's clever. I just need finished rules to try it. <laughs> I can help with that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's eye-opening to, to kind of go through that stuff and see those things. I mean, I, I've come to just, you know, just understand that, you know, 
my a game that I'm showing somebody is twice as complicated as I think it is. Uh-huh. You know, when I'm living in a world that I think is really simple, it's not. Uh-huh. And it's not that people are dumb. It's just things are. They didn't invent the game. You're yeah, you're right. It's in it's in your head. You've lived with it for years. You know, and and they're seeing it and have to deal with it two minutes later. So I think that is a very good start to a discussion on graphic design, which is a massive topic that people make careers out of. But um, <laughs> is there anything else just about elegant game design in general that any of you wanted to talk about? I know, Jeff, you'll be coming back for the time episode, but Adrian and Jamie, this is your last chance for now. I mean, I think to me, elegant game design means that the theme informs the mechanics and the mechanics inform the theme. Um, I'm very big on having everything go together and graphic design and illustration fall within that too uh kind of under the theme theme heading and i would put graphic design under the mechanics heading um but i i think when everything it's much easier to remember a rule when it's oh obviously if i have more vikings i have to feed more vikings because vikings be hungry (laughs) like ah then i remember i have to feed vikings (laughs) like that to me that is what kind of encompasses elegance within a within a game as if what I'm doing makes sense to me. Yeah, I was talking about that in the article a bit and like people have these heuristics that they use in life and if you can mirror those in your game that's something you don't need to teach like more people need more food that's an obvious thing so that's a lot harder to get across less harder not as right. hard. And the, but like <laughs> But, but less harder. Uh, but then, like, say, in Caverna, you can feed your dwarves uh, gems, as you do. You know? So, like, it, there there are, I guess, caveats to that, that that still make it worth it, though. So <laughs> I'll piggyback off of that for my, my quick final thought, which is uh, one thing that I try to pay attention to when I'm playtesting with people is whenever I say the word remember, like if I say, okay, you guys, remember, you need to collect your gold right now. I try to, that triggers something in me that says, if I'm telling you to remember this, the game needs to also tell you visually somewhere on the board that that's something you need to remember. Whether it's like in Jeff's example of, of um, what's the space game you kept mentioning, Jeff? Eclipse. Eclipse, yeah. Um, whether it's that, uh, Terra Mystica does it well, or, or, or just an icon or a number or, or capacity slots, whatever it is. I try to make sure that players don't have to remember anything, that the game remembers it for them and informs them and reminds them of it. So I always try to pay attention to that when I'm playtesting. Awesome. Uh, Jeff, anything you want to add? Um, mm, not really, but <laughs> I'll come back. But, you know, I mean, I, I, I think that the idea of of linking the theme, the mechanics, the graphic design. I mean, the whole package really needs to come together and it needs to be a team effort to, uh, you know, to get to that point between the designer and, and the game designer, the graphic designer, you know, the publisher, the illustrator. It's, you know, there's so many different aspects that need to, to come together to put a really nice, understandable, enjoyable package into into the player's hands. So it's, you know, no no detail should be too small for everybody to be worrying about. Mm-hmm. It's the difference between a great game and a playable game. Right. Well, thank you all for coming on. Uh, let's just end it with some contact info if anybody wants to follow you and any uh, projects you're working on now if you want people to know about. Let's start with Jeff. Um, so you can best place to follow me is on Twitter. I'm at G Engelstein, G E N G E L S T E I N. Um, and, um, next game I probably have coming out is, um, 
uh, going to be Versailles 1919 from GMT Games um, about the uh, signing of the Treaty of Versailles at the end of World War One, which I am very excited about. It's it's a really neat topic, uh, and I also have a book uh, coming out: the republication of the Game Tech book uh, about game design and math and sciences being republished by Harper Collins, and that's coming out at the end of January. So can keep an eye out for that. Cool. And Adrian. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Dreadful Games Co., just like it sounds. Uh, and my website is dreadfulgames.com, where you can keep up with all of the various and sundry gamey things that I do. And Jamie. And you can find everything related to me and Stomeyer Games at stomeyergames.com. I also talk a lot about Kickstarter, crowdfunding, and entrepreneurship at that website. And sometimes it's easy to remember kickstarterlessons.com, which directs to the, the Stomeyer Games blog. And oh, and Wingspan is the big game that we we just announced two days ago. Just two days ago, huh? Because I have been hearing about it everywhere. <laughs> well, actually, yeah, we did a soft announcement a few weeks ago, but uh, we started accepting orders yesterday. Today's Thursday, so just yesterday. It's felt a lot longer than two hours. But yeah, Wingspan is is our our new game that I'm very excited about, and hopefully the graphic design is makes it very clear for people to play it. Excellent. <laughs> Awesome. Well, thank you all for coming on, and you are all welcome back anytime you want. Just let me know. Thanks, Chris. Thank you. That's all for this episode. The Board Game Workshop is a member of the Indie Game Report. Check out their reviews and interviews at theindiegamereport.com. Thank you to all of our Patreon supporters, especially our inventor-level supporters, Chris Turner, Alan D. Eckert, Brad Batchelor, and Roscoe Shop. If you'd like to support the show, go to patreon.com slash theboardgameworkshop. You can follow the show on Twitter at thebgworkshop and on Facebook at theboardgameworkshop. And join the show's Discord channel to discuss episodes. You can get links to all of these and the show notes for all episodes at theboardgameworkshop.com. Thanks for listening.